you're trying to build behind this process and behind this transaction an amount of unstoppable momentum. Because what you're trying to do is to change the game. So at, the, at that closing moment, when they're thinking about what price are they going to pay, instead of thinking, how little do I need to pay to get away with this? They're thinking, how much do I need to pay to secure this? Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Private Equity Power Talks podcast. I'm your producer, Richard Aliff. In this episode, we have our first returning guest to the podcast, DC Advisory CEO, Richard Madden. The last time Richard was on our podcast, we discussed the effects of the COVID pandemic on PE market conditions and trends. Now, as lockdown ends and the PE deals market starts to pick up momentum, we will be discussing how our members can prepare for and execute the exit process. We discussed the stages of preparation for the various exit routes, including appointing advisors, having the right team in place, and perfecting your business plan and sales narrative, ultimately enabling you to run a competitive and ethical bidding process. Now, over to Sam and Richard. So in this episode, we're joined again by our friend Richard Madden, CEO from DC Advisory, uh, the cross-border investment bank. Richard very kindly recorded a podcast for us a few months ago on the state of the market as we moved into 2021. Uh, at the time, we also wanted to pick his brains on another subject. So he's he's returned and uh, given us some more time to talk about this issue. And this issue being prepping your business for an exit. Now, Pep Talks uh, within our community of CEOs, about 150 CEOs, many uh, will be embarking on an exit process for the first time over the course of the next 12 to 24 months. So we really wanted to give them a, the, the sort of inside view from uh, an absolute professional in terms of, you know, this is how you should be approaching this process and this is how to deliver a process like this effectively and efficiently. So thanks for joining us again, Richard. Pleasure. Just to kick off, so the CEO's role in the exit, when, when should they really... Uh, start building relationships with uh, with, their, with their next buyer and their next buyer could well be a trade buyer, their next buyer could well be a private equity firm, uh, the next buyer could be the public markets. Um, but when, when should a CEO really be thinking about um, making those connections? There's a couple of things on that. Uh, first, it depends on, on where the business is. Um, and the extent to which the narrative, not only of the recent past, but actually of the next few years, is clear and well-defined. Um, and I think once you're at that point, then you're at a point where you can start having the conversations. However, um, I would be somewhat cautious because they can become a real distraction. Um, private equity are desperately keen to build as strong a relationship as they possibly can with a management team in advance of a potential process. So getting a meeting won't be difficult. Stopping that, the next one and then the next one and the next one is much more difficult. So once that ball is rolling, it is a snowball and takes up, gathers a lot of snow, and that is snow that you could be using elsewhere. It is much more important that the business is running well that the key KPIs of the business are 
continuing to develop strongly and that you've got a clear vision, sense of your strategy and vision. Um, so I would, my advice would be it's, it's helpful when you know what you're going to say. It's helpful when a sale is not quite imminent, but in sight. And it's actually helpful when you are keeping it a relatively tight group. You just don't want to be wasting too much of your time with too many people who will never become relevant. But what about the trade buyers, though? Certainly some of our experienced CEOs have said they've started talking to trade buyers a long way out, what the trade buyer really wants and, and what they will pay the extra value for. Yeah, Sam, I think that's, that's wise advice, um, particularly when those trade buyers are large. Because um, you, you'll, you'll know them because they'll be in your market. Sometimes you'll know them as a competitor. Sometimes you'll know them as somebody who does the same thing in a different geography to you. But you will know them and you'll know who they are. And there will be commercial contacts across your business by, more often than not. The difficulty is that, if it, particularly if it's a large corporation, there are any number of different points into that business um, the one with whom you directly compete, the divisional directors of the people uh, who they work for, or the group level, or indeed the group level, or the head of M&A, or the head of strategy. So, so where you connect into those businesses is pretty hard. My uh, rule of thumb is don't try and do corporate finance in those conversations. Try and do proper strategic fit chat. And that probably means it's people against whom you might be competing or the divisional heads of those, those groups. Because that's a different kind of conversation. It's not a deal conversation. It's a strategic fit, business fit, product fit, that kind of conversation. Because that'll always end up being worthwhile. Six months, nine months later, if you do launch a sale process, somebody like me will head, call up the CEO or the head of M&A and say, we're selling this wonderful business. Do, have you heard of it? At which point they probably, they, they may say yes, but they may say no. What they then do is they go and talk to the most relevant people in their organization to get a yay or nay around this. And those are the people that you will have been talking to. And they'll say, oh, yes, absolutely. We've heard of that one. It's a great one. And so I think you need to be careful about how you go in, where you go in, but it, it, it it's... Seldom a bad idea because you frequently learn things that are useful for you in the operation of your business, whether they bid or engage or not. Okay, that's great. Then the IPO, I mean, that's, that's a whole different world, isn't it? Um, preparing for an IPO. It, it, it's a whole different world. Um, and you do need to decide before you start that that's what you really want to do. You want to be the management team of a public company um, because if you're unclear or unsure, it's a very complex and long process to get you, get you to a point that you wish you'd never arrived at. And you can't then, it's very difficult to walk away because you're in the public gaze, you're in the public arena, you've got hundreds, possibly thousands of shareholders at that point. So some people love it, some people like the fact that they are not answerable to a single private equity firm with a spreadsheet, but they can actually drive their own strategy. They're more independent and they definitely are. And then the final thing I'd say about an IPO is that given it takes about six months and 
the outcome is dependent on things beyond your control, i.e. the state of the equity markets and how institutional fund managers are, are feeling, you don't get very much visibility on pricing or status, except what your broker tells you. And funnily enough, the broker is going to tell you it'll be a fantastic deal and it'll be a huge price because that's how they get the that's how they get the mandate to do an IPO in the first instance. So um, let's 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 go back to the sort of stages of of the exit process. I mean, CEOs many would be saying this to me now. We we've had a reasonable crisis. And we expect to go in the next 18 months. So they're, they're beginning yep. to, to prepare themselves psychologically for the process. I suppose, you know, just talk us through the stages. I mean, should should they worry about who's appointed to sell the business as a corporate finance firm? Should they take any lead there or should they be happy for the PE firm to take the lead and go with the flow? I think they should take a significant role in it. It's a difficult one because the PE firm will have much, much more experience of working with each of the people who you might appoint. So they will have a much greater knowledge of what that firm is capable of, um, or indeed as to how valuable that firm's relationship is to the PE firm. Because you've got to remember, the best advisors aren't always appointed. Otherwise, we'd be on everything. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, we, um, no. So, so I, I think as CEO, you have to think about this very carefully because you're going to be locked in a clinch with whoever it is for anywhere from you know, six to nine months. And uh, you're looking for their expert guidance through a process with which you are less familiar. So having somebody whose judgment you trust um, and who you think is empathetic to the business uh, it, and will be um, positive but truthful um, about what the challenges are, uh, is really, 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 really important. So I, I think just saying, oh, well, let the PE guys do it, no. I really wouldn't do that. I would recommend to every management team that they take a very active role in that. The other thing I'd say and, and is that the pitch process is hopeless. You know, in, in terms of you gathering the information and insight that you need to make the right appointment, the pitch process, I tell you, and I must have pitched hundreds of times, is hopeless because what you really care about is what are the people like I'm going to be working with? Who are they really? What do they really know? Who do they really know? And how do they really behave in process? So my advice on that is, is that you as the CEO should spend time with the top two people at each of the advisors, at least a meeting and a dinner and a just something where you can get a sense of who they are and what they've done um, and whether you'll get on with them. You don't need to, you know, you don't need to like them necessarily, but you do need to have chemistry with them. You do need to feel that they will help you get the best out of any given situation. And that, that sometimes that's grit in the oyster. Sometimes it's pearls. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's what works for you. So I think that's really, really important that you do take time, make time out of your busy schedule to pick the top, you know, the top two or three advisors that you think you're going to end up with, get to know the senior people. Equally important is to ask them for references of the last 10 deals they've done, not, not the, the 10 they want to tell you about, because we've all got somebody who'll say something nice. But, but re and then start ringing around. Again, if you think about how you would employ a senior person in your business, 
the references are probably the single most important thing that you do. And the same should be true when appointing a, a, a financial advisor. So just call people. The people in your network will know the people you're talking about, will have worked with the people you're talking about. Call them because you'll save yourself a huge amount of heartache um, by appointing the right advisor who really has done what they said they'll do and who is empathetic and capable. I mean, one of, one of, uh, one of our members more experienced, a founding member, very experienced CEO, sort of actually sort of made his selection a long way out, about a year or so out of yep. starting the process. So, so I would strongly point- advise that. I would strongly advise it because there's all sorts of things about um, helping to helping you think about the business plan, helping you think about the strategic fit of the business, helping you determine who you're going to talk to and when. Um, but actually helping you think about when's the best time to go. If, you're, if you pitch somebody and you immediately launch into the sale process, the whole timing debate's over. Mm. You, you're kind of in process from that moment. I think, I think uh, having advisors on board really to think about the optimal timing for value creation for the current investors, uh, you know, I think 12 months is sensible. It hardly ever happens, but I think it's eminently sensible. Okay. So we've, we've made our selection. Let's let's just do a quick um, whistle stop through the, pro- the, the the stages of the process. So, I mean, first stage. I'm 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 no expert, but it's it's preparing. Is it preparing the IM? I mean, I've selected the advisor. Now it's right, let's let's write the book. No, <laughs> no, it's not actually. Um, well, again, I think again going back to my earlier observation about you appoint an advisor and then you're off. You shouldn't be because essentially the single most important thing is that you get the business plan right that you work on the business plan with the advisor, really sensitize it, really think about the narrative it's telling. So what's happened in the last three years, what's happening in the next, and from that position, what can I say about the future thereafter? And so the business plan is a combination of that strategic positioning and that market positioning and that statement of history and intent. And then it's a spreadsheet inevitably. Um, and then it is the, the numbers that support that. And you need to make sure that all of that narrative and all of those numbers are consistent. And if you get that right and spend too much time on it at the beginning, it will save you huge amounts of time later. Because it is that plan that forms the basis first of the teaser. Is then that plan that will be examined by the financial diligence providers and by the commercial diligence providers on the home team. It then will form the basis of the IM. And so you've got a consistent thread, a consistent message that flows through all of those documents, whoever's producing them. And then it flows through thereafter into the management presentation. And the management presentation should all be about um, you know, what's the, the growth story? What are we really hoping to achieve to build that kind of, going back to the, the plan should feel reassuring and solid. The management presentation, the future should feel exciting. So the first step is all about making sure that the bedrock on which you build everything else is really solid and really consistent. And every time that you speak to the market, any potential bidders or their advisors or diligence providers, there's a very clear, very consistent very regular message that comes out that just builds and reinforces everything you believe in. Mm-hmm. Hand in hand with that should should be getting the house in order. 
So, so, so um, that's absolutely right. And again, the, the, the things that you do for the external world um, should all be consistent with the things that you have done within the business. Um, because it, that, that consistency of narrative and of improvement is really important. Um, significantly with trade investors, but absolutely dominantly with private equity investors, they look at spreadsheets and numbers. And so the most effective thing you can do to plan for a process is to make sure that you've got a really good CFO. Because a vast amount of the burden of process sits on them. And whilst it's true that they're unlikely to be the person who is, is building the excitement and the, the kind of glamorous strategic upside of global domination, any messages that you give about that will be significantly undermined if the numbers don't add up. And so there is a huge downside protection and process efficiency gain from having a really good CFO. So if you're sitting there thinking, oh, my CFO is good enough, probably not. It is a huge pressure. The process puts a huge amount of pressure on that function. And when you've got somebody who's good, it's just transformational. So one of these, again, I would consider is not only having a CFO who is really good, but also thinking about how you might temporarily supplement resource yourself internally to help go through the process. So that's a one-off line item. That's a one-off cost of the transaction. It doesn't form part of your ongoing EBITDA, mm. but it can help you get stuff done. All CFOs are to some extent financially capable. Not all CFOs have been through the kind of rigor of a process and have a real understanding of what investors are looking for, particularly around some of the completion mechanics and closing balance sheets and lock boxes and networking capital and all of that stuff. So if you have a CFO who's not been through that before, you and they should have the humility to own up to that, put them in front of some experts and help get them sort of trained, informed and up to speed. The other, the other issue there, I suppose, just in, in the preparation process is, you know, uh, you know, these businesses, they're heading for exit, therefore they're they're performing uh, in in the majority extremely well and heading towards more growth. So, is that sort of fine balance between selling it well but not overselling it? Because certainly, if it's a secondary deal, you've got to deliver the number, haven't you? You can't you can't sell okay. a number that's a bit optimistic. Yes, is the answer. Um, you should be worried about that all the time. Less less for that, but more for the fact that. That's for if I say one thing and I don't, I've got to deliver it going forwards. I think that's the sort of the secondary consideration. The, the first one is about how do I make sure a transaction happens? Because particularly in the current market where investors are enthusiastic but very diligent and, and actually pretty risk averse, if you commit to things that feel over the top, or too positive, or too enthusiastic, then you'll just lose credibility. And your credibility is the thing you should probably value most significantly in a process. So our view is that you should have a robust and positive, but achievable plan. And as investors get to know you better, they understand that that is the case. 
And so when you come to talk to them about some of the upsides, what more you might do to deliver it, that's a conversation in which they have confidence. And therefore, they are inclined to, frankly, bid a bit more positively because they, they believe that you are a, a robust and positive but somewhat conservative team who will over-deliver. And far better that than, than, than have people put off because they just don't believe what you're saying. Yeah. Now, lots of our competitors produce plans which, which frankly, stretch credulity beyond breaking point. And it is our view that that's a very, very bad place to start a transaction. And it's a very, very bad place for a management team to start a business relationship with a new investor. Although there's a huge difference here with the US, because in the US, every single plan is absurdly, incredulatively ridiculous. And so the problem you've got there is that when they receive one of our IMs, they immediately cut all the growth rates by 10% because that's what they have to do in the US. And suddenly they've got something that's uninvestable. It, you have to be very careful and sensible about how you talk about plans with European as opposed to US investors in particular. Well, that's very interesting because we're commonly asked by our members, what's the difference between selling to a UK European uh, investor on the second bill tertiary versus selling to a US and what should I be worrying about? I mean, lots. You should be worrying about lots. Um, so the, the first thing is, how, let, let's, let's start with how do they engage in process? And again, that's very different. So in the same way that they think that every plan they're ever see, they've ever seen has been pumped up and overinflated, so their approach to process is to bid a pumped up and overinflated price. So it's, all, it's almost, almost every time the highest offers come out of the US. The other thing is that they tend not to want to do any detailed work until they've got exclusivity or until they've created at least a reduced competitive field, so late on. So when you're getting, getting these very high bids from US private equity, it's very hard to give them any credibility because they haven't been backed up by significant work by the bidder. Whereas with Europeans, they tend only to bid um, what they think that they can pay based on the numbers that they've seen. So you've got this strange process where you've got a, a sort of um, a, a hardworking, diligent, well-qualified European bid that's 20% less than the hardly done any work at all. Let's see if we can get an option on the second round US bid. So it's fundamentally different. It get, then gets different when you start talking about management packages. So notwithstanding the fact that they may be very generous on the headline price, um, US firms are not by nature generous on management packages. European deals are much better. Um, they're much better in the way that they're constructed, as in combination of loan notes and equity and sweet equity. In the US, it's significantly focused on options. Um, and therefore, in, the, in, in anything other than very strong performances, there can be nothing for the management team. Now, we have spent quite a lot of time educating US bidders on the differences and that, that to be competitive, they need to get that right. Um, but it, you're still uh, walking them up from where they were. So it's totally different. Yeah. There are exceptions, of course, though, aren't there? I know. Um... Yeah. I mean, US investors have a have an image of being a lot more aggressive and operational, which, uh, you know, there's some truth in that, isn't there? But equally, find find the right investors from the US and they can be oh, extremely... No, there, there are some... Absolutely true. There are some wonderful investors, really thoughtful, really strategic, 
really long-term, really visionary. I mean, again, there are more different types of investors in the US than there are in Europe. It's a deeper, wider, broader pool. I mean, there are some with whom I have worked, um, you know, US investors without any European presence at all, who've made wonderful stewards of businesses for the management team and for the, for the, for the business and for future investors. So every generalization has a string of exceptions. And now some thoughts from Education Placement Group CEO Robin Johnston on her Pep Talks membership experience. I started to learn a lot more about why some of the decisions that were being made or we were making at board level, what they meant for the private equity firm who backed us. And so then I felt a lot more aligned with the PE firm because I understood where they were coming from versus where the management team were coming from. Um, and it was my first venture with private equity, so it was really useful to understand the motivations. Um, and then I realised the other added benefit was I was suddenly meeting peers who were going through similar things to what I was going through at the same time. And it's very lonely being a CEO and having that sort of peer network was brilliant. Some of the CEOs I was meeting were in my industry and there were things that we could, we could actually do some business together. Um, and then I, can, I could see that that network is incredibly valuable to me now, not just as, as a support network, but potentially a business network as well. If you would like more information on Pep Talks membership, then email us at info at pep-talks.co.uk. So any, any other sort of top tips on, on the process? I suppose, you know, the warm-up meetings, the presentations, there's also that sort of dynamic of, you know, the, the team that's selling the business and then the team back at base operationally running the business. I mean, you, can't, you cannot afford to fall off your numbers, can you, in an exit process? Yeah, Sam, I mean, that, that's absolutely right. Going back to my observation about, you know, the plan and we like to make it conservative and we like to build it, there's nothing worse than, than swimming against the tide of disappointing performance. Um, it, again, that is really, really hard. But you, you just need strength and depth in your management team. So if you're, if you're putting a couple of hundred thousand pounds of extra cost into the business to make sure that it can run through process well, that will go counter to your selling investors' desires because they'll want to have the largest number of the EBITDA number. But you should persuade them that it's worth it because the risk of, of slipping and not, and not hitting your numbers because there isn't quite enough bench strength um, is much more dramatic than the cost of that bench strength. What, what about the, the sort of moving from warm-up conversations to to sort of selecting your final shortlist? I mean, you know, again, I, I've got no experience of this, but you know, what? How many warm-up meetings should does a process have? Well, Sam, the, 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 there used to be none. You know, there were very few, and it was just the, the management team had to just take what they were given. Um, so we've come, we've come a bit, we've come a bit of a way from then. Um, it's a very awkward one, this, because essentially private equity firms, when they get back to base, they're, they're, they're asked, you know, how well do you know the management team? And clearly um, to turn around and say, well, I've never met them um, means that they're unlikely to get a material allocation of capital to go and spend on a business where they've never met the management team. 
essentially you have to you have to have met the most credible bidders in your process because if you haven't they won't get serious taken seriously back at base all that i think guides you towards doing rather than a kind of spray and pray let's go to 30 people and hope one of them turns up to do something much more targeted and focused and essentially have a rolling um, group of people whom you do see from whom you're looking for the best bidder. Because if you think about what you want, what do you want? You want, in, in any process, you're solving for two things. One is the avoidance of process failure. And the second is maximizing price. That may come from the same person, but you're looking for your banker bidders. And so a core, small but core group of people who to whom you feel close and who feel close to you essentially become your banker bidders. And you probably want three of those. That's enough. It, it, unless you have sufficient meetings to understand who your banker bidders are, you're always running the risk that there's lots of people who are somewhat interested and no one who's absolutely committed. What about being able to influence it? Uh, influence, you know, let's just say uh, I'm, I'm selling pep talks and uh, there are three investors who are going to be my banker, banker bidders, um, but there's one specifically that I really want to partner with. How how ethically can I steer towards that outcome? So um, different people behave in different ways in the market. So there are some people who will who won't care how process runs as long as you get the best price. So or who it goes to, so as long as you get the best price. That's not us. We we think that if you are asking people to spend time and money looking at an opportunity, then they have to have a fair chance of winning. So let's take your three people. There's one who's preferred, there's two who are not, but they've all spent a million pounds on diligence. I don't think to turn around and say, well, actually, you never could have won it anyway because we were always going to sell to Bob is fair. So I, I really don't like it. It happens sometimes um, and we can't stop it happening. But I think you as a management team need to think carefully about that. Fortunately, and this is so amazing to me, it almost never comes up. It almost never becomes an issue. Most times, management are happy with any of the people who get there. And actually, most frequently, the most committed bidder is the one who likes and believes in the management team the most and is therefore prepared to pay the most. And so bizarrely, you get this kind of virtuous circle of the most loved becomes the most loved, becomes the most knowledgeable, becomes the best bidder kind of thing. You know, Attached to that is that sort of conundrum of, management being sellers and then the moment comes when they become buyers and their interests are no longer quite aligned with the current investor and now aligned with the new shareholder it is very difficult my experience tells me that um the competitive nature of most of the people who run businesses <laughs> means that if you that they set the prize of the current engagement as being the best possible price. We sold for a great price. And so, and you get a whole momentum of all of the advisors and all of the selling sales all pushing to that same thing. And that becomes the point of it. Um, and the penny drops early as to this is a conflict. The, the power of a good competitive process washes it away. And then just as you're signing, the penny drops again. Um, but 
again, I think most of the management teams, and I say, and I'm meaning 95 plus percent of the management teams that I've ever worked with, have wanted to do the right thing for the current shareholders at large, of whom they are one part. And therefore, and I, I don't know whether it's a British thing, I don't know whether it's a bit, but, but it, it, it almost never becomes a significant point of issue because the management team are keen to do the right thing for the people who've backed them for the last several years and they'll take their luck with the next investor and they'll do the right thing for them as well. Honestly, you'd be, you'd be, people talk about this all the time, but it manifests itself very infrequently as, as a genuine deal issue. Last question then. So, you know, what makes, what makes a difference in terms of, I mean, sort of slightly co- contradictory question, but, you know, we're, we're, we're in the exit process now. What determines a business exit value in terms of outperforming itself? Okay, two, two things. Two things. Uh, the first one is preparation. You know, so don't start till you're ready. Going back to that thing that I was saying earlier about the fundamental core business plan and building on that. That's the first thing. Be really, really well prepared about all of the different aspects of the deal. Um, the second one is momentum. Um, and so you're trying to build behind this process, and behind this transaction, an amount of unstoppable momentum. Um, and, and that, for me, is related because it's all about every time somebody looks at the business, it's slightly better than they thought it was. They want to invest in the market slightly more than they thought they did. All of the diligence is confirmatory rather than challenging, both the diligence we do and the diligence that the bidder does. And so you, you get this sort of sense of momentum because what you're trying to do is to change the game. So at, the, at that closing moment, when they're thinking about what price are they going to pay, instead of thinking, how little do I need to pay to get away with this? They're thinking, how much do I need to pay to secure this? And they're worried that because it's been such a good process and it's such a good um, management team and it's such a good business that they're actually going to have to pay a bit more than they thought and then a bit more than that. And then, oh, what if the bloke around the corner wants to, oh, 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 oh. And so you get them essentially negotiating themselves against themselves because the preparation has been so good, because the momentum has been built up so strongly and because they feel the hot breath of competition on their, on their necks. Okay, Richard, thank you very much. That was, that was great. Really informative. I'm sure we'll have, well, I'm sure we'll have, if we have members wanting to reach out, then we'll put, the, put them in touch with you. That would be very kind. Thank you. So Richard, what do you what do you take away from that that podcast for Richard? First of all, I think it was really good to have Richard back on the podcast. More looking to the future. Hopefully, a lot of our members are thinking about their next exit exits now, and this podcast will be a good guide. In terms of my personal takeaways, I think the thing that always resonates with me, and I hear whenever we do these discussions on exit, it's just that aspect of authenticity through the process. You're eventually going to enter into a new three to five year relationship with this investor. And you don't want to start that off on rocky ground. Like I say, I think that that's a key theme we get throughout all of our content. I mean, and more recently, our private equity masterclass on exit management. That was a key focus. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think back on it and actually, you know, the sort of underlying advice 
from Richard and, and from our founding members in, in Pep Talks community is that you don't want this process done to you. You, you want to influence and control this process as a CEO as much as you possibly can. It's an emotive moment because you and the management team have been working towards this for three to five years, and it is your pinnacle. And it is the point at which your interests will diverge uh, from your current shareholders, um, especially if you're doing a secondary or tertiary enrolling again. And it's, it's really important to be prepared for that and try and remove yourself from the emotion, understand your current investor's perspective, and really deliver fact-based, data-based, compelling stories in terms of your growth and compelling arguments for why this might be the right deal to take if you need to influence your investors' thinking. But no, I thought I thought Richard was great. Easily digestible tips in terms of you know, making the process as efficient and as effective as it possibly can be. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, really insightful podcast. Uh, so DC Advisory is actually one of Pep Talk's advisory partners. So if any of our members are interested in a consultation with them, just get in touch with us directly. And equally, anyone who's not in the membership, if they're interested, I'm sure we'd be more than happy to connect you with DC.